0: Hi, everybody. This is Alan. Uh, I just wanted to acknowledge that for this episode, we did have some audio trouble with Anya's feed. I'm not sure what happened. I tried really hard in the editing process to clean it up, but you're going to hear a lot of like popping and crackling. I just uh, cleaned it up as much as possible. And I'm sorry that uh, if it impacts your experience of the show. Just a content warning for this episode as well that uh, at various points we discuss some traumatic material around domestic abuse, uh, violence, and just general misogyny. We're never uh, explicit in the way that we talk about it, though. We're not like graphic and descriptive, but we do uh, spend a lot of time thinking about these things as they relate to the comedy special that uh, we discuss. Please enjoy the episode. Uh, And thanks again uh, for your patience with the technical issues. Welcome to Hollowed Ground Storycast. I'm Alan.
1: And I'm Anya, and this episode is about Nanette, the groundbreaking, heartbreaking, and hilarious comedy special by Hannah Gadsby that will make you laugh and cry. I can't believe I didn't watch it when it first came out.
0: Hindsight is a gift.
1: So, like I kind of explained in the intro, Nanette is a Netflix comedy special by Australian comedian Hannah Gadsby. It was filmed live at the Sydney Opera House. She first performed the show in 2017, and the Netflix version was released in 2018. The show's topics include lesbian, genderqueer, and women's perspectives, mental illness, the nature of comedy, and art history. In 2019, the Netflix special won the Emmy for Outstanding Writing for a Variety Special and a Peabody Award. It also has a 100% positive rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I don't know if anything gets a 100% <laughs> rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's, like, pretty incredible. Yeah, so I first heard about the special when it originally came out in 2019, and I've actually, I've, like, read so many articles about this comedy special, Um and it's just been on my list of things to watch, and I kind of just, like, never got around to it because I guess I knew it was kind of, like, an intense experience. And I never really just like felt like I was in the mood for that. Um When I watched it, it just, it gave me a lot of emotions. It is hilarious. And it is also like getting punched in the gut. There are parts of it that I think feel a little bit dated. Like there are some references to Trump. It keys into a certain type of disbelief and anger that is definitely like Trump era pre-COVID, but it still feels super relevant um, today and and absolutely worth watching.
0: Do you watch a lot of stand-up? Because stand-up is something that I watched a lot of from the time that I was a small child all the way into my adulthood, and I kind of stopped watching stand-up Around the time that my first kid was born. And I don't think that I've actually sat down and watched like a serious work of stand-up until this. So it's been more than a decade for me.
1: Oh wow. Yeah. I would say I'm not a huge stand-up person. Like I don't go out of my way to watch a lot of stand-up. Eddie Izzard's Dress to Kill, I watched a lot. Um, like in high school and college, maybe? Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I kind of grew up on certain Chappelle show sketches, but in terms of like actual stand up, yeah, like not a ton. Uh, Hari Kondabolu's Waiting for 2042 is the other stand up show that I've like listened to several times. The stand up that I listen to is all like kind of transgressive in some way, so it makes sense that this would definitely appeal to me. It's interesting, too, right? Because, you know, most of the things that we talk about on the show are things that have been really important to us for, you know, like, a long amount of time. They tend to be older things. Um, Mm -hmm. This might be, like, the newest thing that we have talked about on the show. But, you know, I watched it, and I was immediately like, oh, I need Alan to watch this, and we need to talk about it. Because, I mean... (laughs) This, it is a comedy special, but it is about the power of stories, right? So I yeah. just, it's, and you know, it's so complicated. It touches on so many like really important and interesting themes. It just seemed like it was the perfect uh, topic to talk about on the show.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I listened to so much stand-up comedy when I was younger. My roommates, uh, when I met my wife, was um, breaking into stand-up comedy and we used to watch it and take it apart the way that at the same time I was taking apart the structure of storytelling to teach myself how to do it he was doing that with stand-up comedy to teach himself how to do it when you start to like examine the structure of art it like ruins the art you know what I mean like and so you'd like see the way that jokes are structured and then you can then you start to like get this weird insular kind of snobbery of like, well, that was a poorly constructed joke and all of this other stuff. And you like you're appreciating it on a meta level and then you want more sophisticated stuff and blah, 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 blah. But like I value all of that experience and all of that deconstruction because this comedy special actively deconstructs what a comedy special is and stand-up comedy itself in a funny, interesting way. Mm-hmm. She's so brilliant. She even makes that, like, a part of the show and a really important part of what she's saying.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting, right? Like, this is a comedy special, and throughout it, Hannah... I feel like that's weirdly overly familiar, but also just calling her, by her full name feels weird, Hannah Gadsby. I don't know. Um, (laughs) Miss Gadsby. I'll just call her Madam. Madam Gadsby. There you go. Um, Great. Throughout the show... Um, she talks about how she is thinking of quitting comedy because a lot of her comedy was built on self-deprecating humor and how, you know, like as she's gotten older, that, that style of humor, like she realizes how much it is actually like damaging her. Like it starts out as a coping mechanism, but at some point, like, it stops working as a coping mechanism?
2: I think part of my problem is, is comedy has suspended me in a perpetual state of adolescence. The way I've been telling that story is through jokes. And stories, unlike jokes, need three parts, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Jokes, only two parts, a beginning and a middle. And what I had done with that comedy show about coming out, was I froze an incredibly formative experience at its trauma point and I sealed it off into jokes. And that story became a routine and through repetition, that joke version fused with my actual memory of what happened. But unfortunately, that joke version was not nearly sophisticated enough to help me undo the damage done to me in reality.
1: So it reminded me a little bit of the conversation that I had with my mom, where I was being a shitty little sarcastic kid. And my mom was just like, do you know what sarcasm means? And I was like, no. And she was like, it's in Greek, it means like the tearing of flesh. Hmm. You know, I know that you think sarcasm is funny, but like, it is rooted in pain. And so like, just think about that. It had a bit Impact on me and the way that I thought about humor and like what humor is actually doing, and how, you know, things that are funny for some people can be really harmful to other people.
0: Yeah, I think an important part of everything that you said is to kind of couch it in the subgenre of stand up comedy that she is doing, which is like identity comedy. Like somebody is like, I'm a black comic. I'm a lesbian comic in this scenario. When you're a marginal person, then that identity comedy, it makes everybody who's not on the margins comfortable because like she says in there, she's like inseminating her lesbian identity into the, the tension part of the joke and then letting you feel okay about your discomfort with her being a lesbian mm-hmm. in the punchlines. And so the whole thing is like therapy for straight white men uh, around like the discomfort of lesbians, you know, existing. Yeah. And, and it's, so it's like violence to herself.
2: <laughs> Let me explain to you what a joke is. Uh, and when you strip it back to its bare essential components, like its bare minimum, a joke is simply two things. It needs two things to work: a setup and a punchline. And it is essentially a question with a surprise answer, right? But in this context, what a joke is is a question that I have artificially inseminated <laughs> tension. I do that. That's my job. I make you all feel tense, and then I make you laugh, and you're like, "Oh, thanks for that." <laughs> I was feeling a bit tense. I made you tense. <laughs> this is an abusive relationship. <laughs> Do you know why I'm such a funny fucker? Do you know? It's because i you know, I've been learning the art of tension diffusion since I was a children. <laughs> but back then it wasn't a job, wasn't even a hobby, it was a survival tactic. I didn't have to invent the tension, I was the tension. <laughs> I, I, I'm tired of tension. Tension is making me sick. It is time I stopped comedy. I have to quit comedy. But I mean, I, mean, I can't quit you. I, I, can't, <laughs> I can't quit you. I can't because I don't have a backup plan, guys. Um, it's similar to, I think, the same
1: way a lot of white people relate to Dave Chappelle's comedy where it's like, yes. oh, I'm in on the joke now. Like, right. police sprinkling crack on black people they shot. Ha ha ha, isn't that funny?
0: When Chappelle's show is like anti-comedy. It's like, this This is not funny because it's real, you know? And it's like, he's laughing at the people laughing at him and taking their money, you know? It, it, that's like a, a totally different kind of trauma and violence to himself as well. Well,
1: but And that's why he quit comedy. I mean, like, obviously- yes. yeah. Chappelle has like a whole thing with transphobia that we won't get into, but you know, he did after making a shit ton of money Mm -hmm. basically had the option to keep making a shit ton of money and was like, No, I don't want to make comedy where white people just like laugh at black trauma and then like still go out, still do it, and yeah, and like still just like be fucking racist and like, Yep, you know, vote for. DAs and politicians that uphold the criminal justice system and like fuck it I'm out
0: that's what her comedy show is all about yeah is is yeah diffusing that looking at the structure of the identity comedy show and then laying that out to the audience as like this is structurally part of the problem like this is designed mm-hmm. as as you know social therapy not for me but, for you, and like, and it, it has like this sick place that is part of all of art in our culture, of uh, creativity being linked to suffering. Mm-hmm. like as a it is your vocation as an artist to suffer so that the rest of us don't have to.
1: yeah, which is another thing that she brings up, and especially like in the context of Van Gogh. Um, mm-hmm. It's now I have to pronounce that word differently after watching <laughs> Nanette. It's the it's in the, in the back of the throat.
2: Artists don't invent zeitgeists; they respond to it. He was not ahead of his time. He was a post-impressionist painter painting at the peak of post-impressionism while Peter was picking his pickled pepper. He wasn't born ahead of his time. He couldn't network because he was mental. He was crazy. He had unstable energy. People would cross the street to avoid him. That's why he didn't sell any more than one painting in his lifetime. He couldn't network. This whole idea this romanticising of mental illness is ridiculous. It is not a ticket to genius. It's a ticket to fucking nowhere. And artists are not these incredible, you know, mythical creatures that exist outside of the world. No, artists have always been very much a part of the world and they're it very firmly attached to power. Always. Always. Power and money. Art is always there. Right back to the Renaissance. Oh, the turtles. All of them. (laughs) All of them. They knew how to network. Leonardo. Raphael. Donatello. Oh, they are right up there painting their own business cards, schmoozing. Michelangelo was a bit difficult. He was a bit... He's a bit crazy, but, you know, he did, he still networked. He gave gobbies to the Pope. He's a... Kissed his ring, literally. But Yeah, this idea that
1: links creativity, art, suffering, and mental illness that she talks about explicitly. You know, I think both Chappelle's response and Gatsby's response are both totally valid, you know? Like, it's valid to just say like this is hurting me and quit and it's also valid to you know try to re-engage on your own terms and say like okay you want to laugh at my trauma you have to feel it too you know like you can laugh at it but you also have to cry about it you have to sit with like how it fucking damaged me
0: yeah there's like a structure there that um and this is all over art, by the way, like I have so many thoughts about this, Um, where the structure inhibits this kind of reflection on the violence of the structure itself on the the audience and on the artist, right? This is also like a big thing of mine. It it goes back into the rating of art. So you talked about like 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. I strongly feel that rating art is policing that structure to maintain it and is social violence, um, literally. So, like, we tend to, so when we talk about like the objective quality of like the stand up comedy show or a book or a movie, what, what we're really doing most of the time, if we're not very reflective, I say we, like, I just mean people who review stuff is we're comparing it to some kind of like ideal structure. And then in all the ways that it doesn't align to that structure is bad. Right. And so that this has long moments where there's no jokes or, or, you know, or where she is actively trying to make you cry or where she is on purpose. And she points it out like there's like, I I said this about my relationship with my mother and there's no tension there. And doesn't it make you feel uncomfortable? That it's filled with moments like that breaks the structure of it, and therefore it would be like, quote unquote, bad when you compare it to a stand-up comedy special from like Eddie Murphy from the 1980s or something like that, where it's just joke, 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 joke. joke. By reading things, what we're doing, is like especially now, like especially now, I feel like somebody comes out with a book and, and then on Goodreads or on Amazon, the way that that is profiled like the way that it's brought up in an algorithm to people so that they're even aware of it is by the ratings so what we're doing is putting forward the most structurally conforming things which means that you're never going like the the violence that is contained in that structure both to the artist and the audience is perpetuated by the system of rating, if that makes sense
1: yeah, that totally makes sense.
0: Everything about this show is is so great because of how it doesn't conform to that and points it out on purpose. Mm-hmm. When I watched this, I like I started crying because <laughs> of her talking about that and how strongly I feel about it. It was one of the first things, like when I was on Mandy's show, I talked about um, Dead Poets Society, and there's a whole part of Dead Poets Society that is about that exact thing, how you can't rate poetry. You, like they draw a graph and they're like The excellence of the poem And then he like says t- tear it out of the book This is excrement Excrement
2: That's what I think of Mr. J. Evans Pritchard We're not laying pipe We're talking about poetry I mean, How can you describe poetry Like American bandstand well, I like Byron, I give him a 42 but I can't dance to him Now I want you to rip out that page Go on. Rip out the entire page. You heard me. Rip it out. Rip it out! Go on. Rip it out! Thank you, Mr. Dalton. Gentlemen, tell you what, don't just tear out that page. Tear out the entire introduction. I want it gone. History. Leave nothing of it. Rip it out! Rip! Be gone, J.
3: Evans,
2: Pritchard, PhD. Rip, shred, tear, rip it out. I want to hear nothing but ripping of Mr. Pritchard. We'll perforate it, put it on a roll. Is that the Bible? You're not gonna go to hell for this. Make a clean tear, I want nothing
1: left of it. You know, a good review doesn't just say like, this is good, this is bad, right? It says, this was my reaction to this piece of art. And here is why that gives other people a clue for how they might react to it as well.
0: Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's the thing. It's like what I said. It's not about it's just buzz, right? It's just buzz. It's that's which sucks. It sucks because I would rather like I watch Netflix all the time. I've never seen this special. It's years old. I've never seen this special come up in front of me in the algorithm, which has to do with like the way it's rated, but also the things that I watch. And so it just wants to like vomit up more of the things that I watch. And then I'm like, yeah, there's nothing on Netflix because it's just like, you know, the, the same kind of thing over and over. And I just have no awareness that something like this exists at all because uh you know, it's not putting it forward because that's how the algorithm works,
1: yeah, and that is like part of what motivates me to do the show with you, right is because there is infinite content these days, basically, yeah, but finding something that really speaks in a incredibly deep and meaningful way is still as hard as ever. And so you know, part of. I mean, like the number one motivation, right, is just so that we can have these conversations and share the things with each other, but also, you know, so that we can flag these things for our our listeners in case they either haven't heard of them like you or maybe heard of them, but like didn't have the time when it was super buzzy and zeitgeisty Mm -hmm. and then to like put it back on their radar so they can go ahead and, and watch it. That's, like, part of what I love about our show is that it cuts across genres and media. I don't think anybody can say, like, oh, I've already seen every topic that we talk about, right? Because I think we're mm-hmm. we're both pretty eclectic people, and we're pulling from, like, our favorite across all different genres, books, movies, TV. So, you know, everyone's going to find something new. So she's, like, deconstructing what comedy is and like making people live in her trauma that she has been milking for jokes and kind of like sanitizing for so many years. But then also at the end, she goes into a few minutes where she basically just like yells at all the straight white men in the audience and tells them to (laughs) pull their fucking socks off (laughs) and
0: yeah it's great
1: and like like i fucking love it right because let's be honest like the past five years six years at this point oh my god it's been horrible like i think we've all just been like filled with incandescent mrs scarlet and clue rage um you know all the time
2: honestly like it was so cathartic Look, to the men in the room <laughs> who feel I may have been persecuting you this evening, well spotted. <laughs> That's uh, pretty much what I've done there. <laughs> but this is theatre, fellas. I've given you an hour a taste. I have lived a life. The damage done to me is real and debilitating. It will never flourish. But this is why I must quit comedy, because the only way I can tell my truth and put tension in the room is with anger. And I am angry, and I believe I've got every right to be angry, but what I don't have a right to do is to spread anger. I don't. Because anger, much like laughter, can connect a room full of strangers like nothing else. But anger even if it's connected to laughter, will not relieve tension because anger is a tension. It is a toxic, infectious tension and it knows no other purpose than to spread blind hatred and I want no part of it because I take my freedom of speech as a responsibility and just because I can position myself as a victim does not make my anger constructive. It never is constructive. Laughter is not our medicine. Stories hold our cure. Laughter is just the honey that sweetens the bitter medicine.
0: What really hit me about that, that that is different than just like incandescent rage, she said it so perfectly. What about the humanity of these men who are doing this? Like what she is, what she's focused on is like the cost to them of being what they are and how that is not acknowledged. The entire culture is geared towards producing Trump's Mm -hmm. and Harvey Weinstein's and stuff like that. Like the rules exist to define their greatness, right? Because they transcend the rules. The rules don't apply to me. I could go out and what did Trump say? I could go out and shoot people in New York's, you know, Uh, Times Square. Shoot
1: somebody on Fifth Avenue.
0: Yeah, and I would still get elected, right? That the rules exist to show how heroically transcendent I am. And the rules also exist to hold you down. What does that make him? Yeah. Like, I, I don't feel I don't feel sorry for him, you know, in terms of like he has all the power and money, but he's not a whole person. I, yeah,
1: he's definitely not actually happy. Like, I don't... Yeah! I don't... You're No, you're absolutely right. Like, I... Do not pity him, but I am on some level glad that he is miserable and like, wouldn't we all be better off if he could be less miserable and also not hurt people?
0: Why do we have this system? Like, this is what it makes. Like, why? <laughs> For what? Like, it's not even worth it. Mm-hmm. Like, it it makes this. It, and it's not, you know, it doesn't serve our humanity. It doesn't. It just doesn't make any sense, you know. And and it's just happening more and more for, for it, just so the powerful can be powerful. It's just fucking stupid. Um. Yeah, I mean, this really touched. This really touched a nerve with me. And th- this is this is my this is how I see politics. And it pisses everyone off that I talk to about it because like there's always binaries around these things right was like oh you can't you know Trump is a racist and he's evil and therefore and and uh, when I look at these things I I do it through empathy and so when I'm looking at Trump I'm like what a sick miserable person and and not about like he's evil because evils too simple I think it just lets him off the hook in a way that it, it just and it And it also creates a space where I, as a white man who is like married to a woman and, you know, like I have kids and stuff, I don't whatever. Trump's space is the space that's made for me to inhabit. I don't want it. Like, fuck that. Yeah. That's not the space I want. I don't want to like my identity to be oppressing everyone. Like, fuck that. And it's, you know, it's not just about pulling our socks up. It's like the whole system sucks. Um, So I would just rather get rid of it yeah um i'm sorry i'm like yelling no no no. that's that's great
1: that is like i mean i think that's what she the response that she wants to invoke i'm curious how you think her perspective on anger relates to um orlando jones's mr nancy in american god since that's like another show that you and i talk about a lot and you know he says like angry gets shit done
3: let me paint a picture of what's waiting for you on the shore. You arrive in America, land of opportunity, milk and honey, and guess what? You all get to be slaves. Split up, sold off, and worked to death. The lucky ones get Sunday off to sleep and fuck and make most slaves and all for what? For cotton, indigo for a fucking purple shirt. The only good news is the tobacco your grandkids are gonna farm for free is gonna give a shitload of these white motherfuckers cancer. And I ain't even started yet. A hundred years later, you are fucked. A hundred years after that, fuck. A hundred years after you get free you still getting fucked out a job and shot at by police. You see what I'm saying? This guy gets it. I like him. He's getting angry. Angry is good. Angry gets
1: I think Gatsby's view on anger is a little bit more nuanced and complex. Like, it and there is like a little bit of a contradiction in that, right? That I I don't think I've quite figured out because she says I am angry. I'm not ashamed of being angry. Like, I want you to see my anger, but I also don't want to perpetuate anger because it's like anger is tension. Yeah, and. I don't know. Maybe there's not a contradiction in that, but it does seem like there's something there about how, like, yeah, anger is a valid response to a certain set of life experiences, and it does need to be expressed, but it's not really a solution to everything. It's, like, a first step. It has to be, like, okay, so you're angry. Now what?
0: Yeah, and I think, like, anger has been the end goal of of certain you know, parts of the feminist movement at different times because, you know, honestly, like anger is taboo for women, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It needs to be an end goal on a certain level. So I think of everything like yin and yang, you know, like in Taoism, there's always like another side to the coin. Mm -hmm. And so kind of fetish that I see a lot of feminists have for anger or, you know, or like you're saying, Mr. Nancy, you know, black folks are also not allowed to be angry. Like, don't get pissed off about how we treat you. Like, what? Yeah. get back in line. Um,
1: yeah, is- no, I, you're right, though. I think like fetishization is an interesting label to put on that because that depiction of Mr. Nancy and American Gods, it kind of is like a like a real fetishization of anger. Which again yeah. is a valid response. It but is. But it is like yeah, putting it on a pedestal.
0: But you need to get there, right? You have to have permission to be there. But I, I think it's the same. The the yin to the yang on that mm-hmm. it, it, with men is when there's like an exhaustive relationship between men and women where where men will like pour out all their hurt in some kind of therapeutic reach. Of like I can be vulnerable to you because you have less power than me, and therefore like you could heal me, right? Like there is no men with other men cannot have intimate, close emotional connections. You can't in the same way that women are not allowed to be angry mm-hmm. or black folks, because that's that is the emotion we have, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> is anger. We we get to punch a hole in the door. Uh, And that's it. We don't get to cry. We don't get to say I love you to another man in a way that has nothing to do with sexuality. You know, people do, obviously. Um, But I'm just saying, like, in the stereotype, right, of of the the Trump manhood, you know, kind of uh, structure of society. You don't need that because it makes you weak. Um, and so there's a fetish for it uh, for men that is also not healthy, where you're instrumentalizing everyone around you and you're not growing. You're just like vomiting hurt, you know, <laughs> that, that has like, it's, it's like what she said, where you're just having like this recursive relationship where you're in a arrested development and you're just like, oh, it's I hurt so much. It's the same thing. Like you can stand there and burn with anger and it feels good because you're finally allowing yourself to do it, but it doesn't go anywhere, mm-hmm. right? It's just, it has to be one more tool in your arsenal. It's the other thing that sucks about this whole system is we're not allowed to be fully human. And, like, crossing the side to the other side where the grass is greener is not the answer. Like, um, getting to be angry is is just, you know, one step in the process. And you have to, you know, she. it's like she says... One of the things that I love about what she says when she talks about the structure of comedy is that it has two steps, right? There's the setup and the punchline, mm-hmm. but stories have three. There's a beginning, a middle and an end. So there is no process in the middle there for the catharsis. And that's what, that's why the joke is in arrested development. That's why it's just recycling the anger over and over and over. And it reminded me of another podcast that I've been listening to recently called Octavia's parables, um, which is about, um, Octavia Butler's, uh, ta- uh, parable of the talents and parable of the sower books, um, hosted by Adrian Marie Brown, who's a black activist, feminist. Uh, and she just recently on the most recent episode I listened to, she said, binaries are intrinsically conservative. And I was like, yes, this is like exactly like sometimes somebody says something and you're like, I've been trying to say that for like 20 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, and and so I there's like this binary to the setup punchline relationship and and her breaking out of that and telling a story instead where you have to sit with it and have empathy because it draws you in and holds you there that uh, breaks the binary. And then, you know, like for me to have empathy for someone like a a police officer or like Donald Trump doesn't mean that I excuse them. It means that I understand them. You know, like empathy is not about letting someone off the hook because you can see it from their perspective. It's about like knowledge. It's emotional knowledge. And it, it doesn't need to inform your actions in a way where it's like, Oh, now that I see it from your perspective, it's okay. Like it's less okay. <laughs> now that I now that I understand completely where you're at and it, like you need to learn. It, it's not okay for you to behave this way. Um, so yeah, like I think empathy is a tool. And I think uh, anger is a tool and I think relationships are a tool, but they can't be like the end. They're not the destination. They're part of the journey. I I am talking all over your episode. No, I love of, uh, it. I shouting. love it. No,
1: cuz I feel like <laughs> oh, I don't know. I feel like I I had such a strong emotional response to this episode. I feel like my, you know, besides those emotions, like a lot of my response was just kind of like questions more than answers. And I feel like you've been thinking about these things a lot longer than I have. And so I yeah. love um you know, like, hearing your your take on all of this. And I actually, I would love to hear your thoughts on the whole point of the Nanette special was that she wanted her full story to be heard, right? Because she had been mining her traumatic history, like, snippets here and there to make people laugh, to make a living, because she could not make, you know, not a lot of money in art history. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what her degree is in, like what it means to tell your full story to an audience and to make them see you in a world that is basically committed to not seeing you right. as a fat butch lesbian. You know, she doesn't, she talks about how she doesn't fit into the virgin whore dichotomy, speaking of binaries, binaries. Um, that are conservative. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: Art history taught me there's only ever been two types of women: Uh, virgin or a whore. (laughs) Most people think that Miley Cyrus and Taylor Swift invented that binary, but it's been going on (laughs) thousands of years. There's only ever been two options for a little girl to grow up into: a virgin or a whore. We're always given a choice. Take your pick. Lady's choice. That's the trick. Uh, (laughs) The patriarchy. It's not a dictatorship. Take a choice. And I don't fit very neatly into either of those categories. Virgin or whore? I mean, on a technicality, I'd get virgin. <laughs> no. Do you know, if you go into a gallery with oldy paintings there, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that women have existed for a very long time, <laughs> longer than clothes. <laughs> But uh, not this masculine of centre lesbian situation here. And I, I, art history taught me, like, you know, I, I look at these history women and I don't feel like I'm the same species. There's a lot of things that I do and it's not a constru- identity construction. No, I, it just things happen naturally and art history taught me that these things are not really the place of a, of a woman, you know. And one of the things I do is I can generate thought to my own brain Unprompted, I can do that all the time. Oh, oh! had another one. They just come all the time. And uh, art history taught me, uh, you know, historically, women didn't have time for the think thoughts. They didn't have time. They were too busy napping naked, alone in the forest. Even uh, bio- biologically, I-, I don't feel like I'm the same species. Uh, for a start, I've got a functioning skeletal system. Uh, if you go into the galleries, you see if a woman's not sporting a corset and or a hymen, she just loses all structure. <laughs> just sort of like, oh, just flopping about all over the place going, oh, what does furniture? Side <laughs> so saddle tits a kimbo. No wonder we can't reverse park ladies. Dumb history woman couldn't even reverse park their ass onto a chair. <laughs> Another thing that I do is not very ladylike, is every day I seem to be able to finish the getting of the dressed. Every day, <laughs> not a problem. All the buttons all the way up. And I'm quite a vague and forgetful person, but mm, seem to do it quite easily. Uh, <laughs> especially if I'm leaving the house to get my portrait painted. <laughs> Never once have I thought, you know what, today I might just leave a cheeky one out. (laughs) She,
1: you know, as a a fat butch lesbian, she's like, not much use to men. She won't, (laughs) I say say that like in her voice, like she said that, that's not a quote. But like, um, putting words in her mouth, um, she is not for their physical consumption. And she's not for their visual consumption either, you know, like, if you're going to be a lesbian, you might as well be hot and let us watch you have sex um, in porn, mm-hmm. you know? So at least yeah. you're useful to us in that other way. She is like being the voice that she wishes she had when she was growing up, soaking in shame and mm-hmm. and wishes that she had, you know, like some kind of role model. And so... Yeah, there's something just, like, very affirming about your own humanity and worthiness to tell your own story on your own terms and to have people be forced to listen and accept your story the way you tell it, you know? And it's that, like, the, the words that I'm using, you know, almost sound violent in a way where it's, you know, like, forcing people to hear your story the way you want it to be heard but like that's kind of what all of history is right is like white rich powerful men forcing us to interpret history and like our our art our literature on their own terms she's like reframing so much you know there's that saying right that like if you're used to being in power, equality feels like oppression, right? Like, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. oh,
1: my God, being forced to take a fat butch lesbian on her own terms. How dare?
0: Yeah. I mean, she says that is like when you say straight white male, they're like, wait, 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 wait. We made the categories. They don't apply to us. We're just people. <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: You're, you're a subcategory of human for the first time. Hmm, How does that make you right. feel?
0: I don't like this. Yeah. Stop it. Oh really? Like maybe reflect on how that feels. I mean, I know that when I interact with people, I recognize the privilege. It's a downward slope, mm-hmm. right? Like it's it's easy going, um, and I get that. And I definitely, when she talks about being a kid and growing up in a in a society that like teaches you to hate yourself and how your brain literally doesn't make the connective pathways between your self-worth and your identity. Mm -hmm. That like I just burst into tears when she talked about that. Because like the thing that you said about sarcasm, when you were telling that, like I felt I felt that marginal feeling that I always feel around manhood. Because somebody telling me that, like, you shouldn't be sarcastic because that means to hurt yourself. I would be like, good. That is why I should be sarcastic. (laughs) I should hurt myself because I'm worthless. Because that's what I've been taught. From the time I was little, like, after my parents got divorced uh, and my dad took me. It was, you know, I didn't have a bed from that time until... I was in college and now my own bed. Uh, When I was in high school, I slept in a shed. You know, I I would get beaten over nothing uh, sometimes, you know, like I didn't even do anything. It would just, uh, just a look or something or whatever the peripheral excuse was. Um, You know, and sometimes I did antagonize it and make it happen. But also like at the same time, Uh, My dad would show me love and tenderness. Um, And so that was pretty confusing uh, and arbitrary. Yeah. And so like you can't afford in that situation to value yourself. Um, It's a literal survival tactic because if you do, you're going to stand up for yourself and you're too vulnerable to do that. And it's, it's the kind of situation like she talks about with Roman Polanski and a 17 year old girl. That girl can't uh, sorry,
1: Picasso. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: Was it Picasso? Well, Roman Polanski was also a race rapist. Yeah. So so fucking <laughs> yeah, you know,
1: I was not not defending Roman Polanski at all. Just saying she was talking about no, no, Picasso. You're right.
0: Yeah. They can't defend themselves. The power dynamic on multiple levels in that situation is uh it's not their fault. Like not only are they a victim, but like the survival tactics that are involved of like disconnecting from yourself to survive trauma are necessary, but they are also arresting Mm -hmm. in, in terms of like your internal human development. And so for her to do this is, you know, to break the structure of comedy, to force herself to push her trauma out to the audience and tell her story and to force us as the audience to experience it. Is an is an act of self love and and I think that it's also like reciprocal as a work of art, you know, to love yourself too. It's not just her like using the audience as like an ego stroke. It's also teaching us to restructure the art format, but also like to love ourselves through the art, which is an enormous gift. Yeah. That that she's giving the audience uh, and it's incredibly dangerous to her career, you know, <laughs> because um, it could ruin it if it, if it doesn't cause it breaks the structure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so therefore it's bad, uh, but it's also like vulnerable. So it's emotionally dangerous and it's literally physically dangerous because of um, the terrible homophobic society we live in where she makes herself a target. Um mm-hmm. So I'm just really grateful for her bravery and and the work. And I very much identified with the self-hatred part of it.
2: And I'm from the northwest coast of Tasmania, the Bible Belt. 70% of the people I lived amongst believe that homosexuality should be a criminal 70% of the people who raised me, who loved me, who I trusted, believed that homosexuality was a sin, that homosexuals were heinous subhuman pedophiles. 70%! And by the time I identified as being gay, it was too late. I was already homophobic. And you do not get to just flick a switch on that. No, what you do is you internalise that homophobia and you learn to hate yourself. Hate yourself to the core. I sat soaking in shame in the closet for 10 years because the closet can only stop you from being seen. It is not shame-proof. When you soak a child in shame, they cannot develop the neurological pathways that carry thought, you know, carry thoughts of self-worth. They can't do that. Self-hatred is only ever a seed planted from outside in, but when you do that to a child, it becomes a weed so thick and grows so fast, the child doesn't know any different. It becomes as natural as gravity. When I came out of the closet, I didn't have any jokes. The only thing I knew how had to do when I came out of the closet was to be invisible and to hate myself. It took me another 10 years to understand that I was allowed to take up space in the world, but by then I'd sealed it off into jokes like it was no big deal. I need to tell my story properly, because I paid dearly for a lesson that nobody seems to have wanted to learn. And this is bigger than homosexuality. This is about how we conduct debate in public about sensitive things. It's toxic, it's juvenile, it's destructive. We think it's more important to be right than it is to appeal to the humanity of people we disagree with. Ignorance will always walk amongst us because we will never know all of the things. I need to tell my story properly because you learn from the part of the story you focus on.
1: That segment on shame, I think, is one of the most powerful parts of the whole show because I think it does hit us all where we live. You know, like her shame was really connected to her homosexuality. But I think we all have shame about something. And it makes you think a little bit more about LGBTQ pride, right? Gay pride. Like why that is such a thing, right? Is because pride, at least that kind of pride, right? Is the antidote to shame. I think it's not a mistake that so much of Christianity is built around pride as a sin and humiliation, right? I mean, obviously not all of it, but in in its most dysfunctional forms. And yeah, it's interesting, you know, she talks about how gay pride doesn't really speak to her from an aesthetic or uh, like energetic choice. Um, she's a quiet gay. <laughs> She prefers to sit at home and drink tea.
0: I love that part of the show. How she feels marginal even in her marginal. Right, right.
1: And that it's like how frustrating that can be where it's like you have an identity that is so other and yet you feel Mm -hmm. even otherized within that identity. Um, You know, it's like the straights don't want you and the gays (laughs) don't really want you either because...
0: It's like the straights want to kill you and the gays don't want you because you're a bummer. Yeah,
1: because you don't like rainbows and running around and, you know, getting drunk, throwing beads everywhere. I definitely identified with
0: that. She also talks about after her show, she would get feedback from, quote unquote, feedback from lesbian audience members about how she's not good enough as a lesbian. In, the, in her identity, the way that you're saying. And then she would get opinions, quote unquote, from men who are like, you know, you should just calm down and be less offended.
1: Yeah,
0: Which I love that she does that because again, it's that whole thing of like binaries are inherently conservative. It's not that she's rejecting the white male identity and, and flourishing in the lesbian identity. It's that she's being honest about how marginalized she is completely Mm -hmm. and there's no space for her and so she has to use this comedy show to create space for herself and make you feel the way she feels
1: yeah well and i think to the the feedback from um the lesbian right it was that like she didn't have enough lesbian content that like (laughs) not literally every single joke was about being a lesbian. That speaks to the weight that I think is put on a lot of marginalized people to be an icon and to be everything all the time. You will inevitably disappoint your audience at some point because you are a human and not everybody's experience of being human is exactly the same even if you share certain aspects of your identity and the the pressure that that puts on you as a marginalized creator um is pretty intense um and unpleasant
0: and it's like she says uh you know i've been on stage the whole time she is a lesbian this is this is lesbian like That is it. Right. That is, it's not the totality of it. It is a part of it. And it's not, uh, you don't have to speak all things to all people at all times. Like, it's not possible. And it's ridiculous um, to expect it.
1: Yeah. And also the idea that, like, if you're not talking about something explicitly, that that somehow invalidates your identity or, like, you go back to being (laughs) default cis white male. No, like, you know because she is a lesbian all of her content is lesbian content like
0: exactly yes
1: I yes I feel like that's super strongly in the way that people relate to bisexual people they'll say like oh you know well you're in a straight relationship right now and it's like no all of my relationships are bisexual relationships like right it doesn't it doesn't become a straight relationship just because you're confused when you look at me (laughs) like (laughs) if you have a bisexual person having sex like it is queer sex regardless of the genders of the people involved
0: and then at the bedrock of all of that you know it's human this comedy show is a human comedy show it and then on top of that it's a lesbian comedy show I would say Um, yeah that experience is so far out of my experience you know, I talked about empathy and then somebody will like police that and be like, you can't have empathy for people outside of your experience. You can just have sympathy. And like, I understand what that means and everything, but like I am a human and she is a human and I can empathize in the human feelings that are happening there. Even if I can't empathize in the specific experiences, those straight people who are judging you can't empathize with the experience of it. But like there's a, an empathy that can exist in the sexual experience of being a human being. Mm -hmm. It's not extra to it. It's not marginal to it. It is it. It is human to have queer sex Mm -hmm. is what I'm saying. It is this. This counts as art. This isn't marginal art. This isn't lesbian art. Like, yes, it is those things, but it is art. It is comedy. It is. It is the thing. It is not also the thing or on top of the thing. It is the thing. It's hard to, because, like, like, how do we break down the patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's this big interior space. We talk about marginal spaces. So you have to talk about the interior space of, like, white, straight, male, rich supremacy. And, like, the way to fight against that, uh, or is uh, like, on its own terms, you know? Like, so you create the marginal identity group as, like, a group who can stand up to... The interior group because, like, individuals will just get you, you're just going to pick them off, you know. So, you need the group so that you have the safety, but then you end up policing within the group and creating new trauma.
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, that's such a great way of explaining that. It sucks, it super sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so, my other favorite thing about the special is that in a show that is otherwise about you know identity and things that are for the most part like really personal to her specific lived experience she also just like goes on this huge art history tangent and I mean it does relate back thematically because it's about misogyny um but it's so but I just I love that she's like this is my chance to make people hate Picasso. I mean, I don't know if that was actually her process, but like, in my heart, that's what I want to believe is that she was like, okay.
2: because it doesn't get any better with modern art either. i tell you that. I trip on the first hurdle. Pablo Picasso. I hate him, but you're not allowed to. Oh, I hate him, but you can't. Cubism. And if you ruin, if you ruin cubism, then civilization as we know it will crumble. Cubism, aren't we? Grateful in this room <laughs> that we live in a post-Cubism world. <laughs> Isn't that the first thing we all write in our gratitude journals there? Oh, thank God. I don't like Picasso. I fucking hate him. I really, I just, he's rotten in the face cavity. I hate Picasso. I hate him and you can't make me like but you've got a lot, oh, cubism. Okay, <laughs> and I know I, th- I know I should be more generous about him too because he suffered, he suffered a mental illness. But you see, nobody knows that because it doesn't fit with his mythology. They go, I think you're thinking of Van Gogh. <laughs> no, I'm thinking about them all, actually. Because uh, Picasso, you know, he's sold to us as this passionate, virile, tormented, genius man ballsack, right? There's no room <laughs> in that story for, oh, is there? That, no, there's, it's rhetorical, but, there's, <laughs> but, but. But he did suffer a mental illness. Picasso did. He suffered badly and it got worse as he got older. Picasso suffered uh, the mental illness of misogyny. <laughs> Split the room. Didn't I? And I bet you I know how that felt. Um, (laughs) Is misogyny a mental illness? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is. Especially if you're a heterosexual man. Because if you hate what you desire, do you know what that is? Fucking Tense. Sort your of shit out. Yeah, he did suffer from a mental illness. And smarter men than I have proved that he didn't suffer a mental illness, but they're, prob- nah, they're wrong. Um, <laughs> yeah, they'd say that he's not misogynist. They're wrong. He was, if you don't believe me, let me provide you a quaff from picky arsehole himself. He said, each time, each time I leave a woman, I should burn her. Destroy the woman, you destroy the past she represents. Cool bye. The greatest artist of the 20th century. Let's make art great again, guys. (laughs) Picasso, fucked an underage girl. And that's it for me. Not interested. But cubism. (laughs) You need it. Marie-Therese Walter, she was 17 when they met, underage. Legally underage. Picasso was 42, married at the height of his career. Does it matter? Yeah, Yeah, it actually does. It does matter. But as Picasso said, no, it was perfect. I was in my prime, she was in her prime. Hmm. I probably read that when I was 17. Do you know how grim that was? (laughs) Oh, I'm in prime. (laughs) Oh, no. Oh, there is no view at my peak. <laughs> but I wasn't upset at the time, of course, because I was learning about cubism. Ugh, I just I love
1: people who have like a lot of very niche knowledge and expertise, and find ways to share that with a non-expert audience in a way that is fun and interesting and effective both in Nanette and in Douglas, I think she does an amazing job of like teaching us art history and understanding why it's interesting, why it's valuable and like coming to really appreciate art history as a discipline in a way that I like haven't really before.
0: Then she also points out like the structural violence of it mm-hmm. and, and how it is an outgrowth of the white male rich supremacy but it's also like props it up and reinforces it too which is so important. You know because she like describes all of art as like men create, you know, painting dick faces. Yeah.
1: Oh, them. yeah, dick faces for, or wait, um vagina faces for their dick flowers.
0: Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which is great. You know, like it it's, it's, I love how it just like humiliates the men. Uh, in the situation. I love it so much.
1: Yeah. Oh my God. It makes sense though, right? Because like, yeah, if you are trained and steeped in art history, how can you not grow up being aware of the misogyny and the oppression that like permeates all of that art?
0: Yeah. It's such a good part of the show. And and it links back into the whole thing of her deliberately and explicitly breaking the structure of stand-up comedy set And pointing it out because then she like goes on to point out in this totally different art form how the same thing is happening. Mm -hmm. She's not just talking about comedy. It's like all of it. It's all one thing. And how there's like there is a perspective. And then that is the valid real perspective, you know, within the culture that doesn't include the perspective of the subject. Mm -hmm. It reminded me of the book that we just recently finished in the book club, the Discord book club. Uh, Addie LaRue where she the character of that book is is kind of like a muse oh, yeah. to a lot of different artists she is
1: so the well the title of the book is the invisible life of Addie LaRue exactly. and she is the invisible woman who has all of these ideas and wants to create but through the world building right she has this curse no one can remember anything she does and she physically is unable to modify the world or, like, leave a lasting mark. So the only way that she can do that is with a lot of effort and intention trying to influence men, mostly, around her.
0: Right, who are artists and make art about her. Like, the best-case scenario is a man who will completely parrot her, right? Who will, without adding any of his own voice... But like, it's very, (laughs) that only happens once in 400 years. Yeah. So like, (laughs) and so, and under very special circumstances. And so like, she's the subject of many, many paintings and drawings and stuff like that. And in exactly the same way that she, that she was pointing out in the comedy set, like they resonated really nicely together. I thought because it was like, you know, like the female presence is like oblique and only exists to be a subject for men to do art for and it's you know and but then it goes back to that whole thing that we talked about earlier in the conversation about how art like the function of art is to contain feelings so that the rest of us don't have to feel them Mm -hmm. what it really is is so that men as the scent you know because we're the only real humans don't have to feel anything we don't have to be emotional we can be numb. Uh, in our our cultural space, because our feelings are vicarious through art. Mm -hmm. And so like, the subjectivity of women, like, they exist so that again, you know, for our therapy, because that's the thing that is taboo for us. And, And all that numbness is just to help prop up the emotional violence that I talked about earlier, where like, you're not the, the harm that you're doing to yourself as a human being by hurting others uh, and, and shutting down your empathy. That's why you have to be numb as a man so that you can do that work to make the system keep going the way that it does. And so art exists so that we can do that in within the system that we have created. It's, you know, that's not the reason that we as human beings made art. It was to express ourselves and memorialize our experience and blah, 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 blah. But, like, the real reason within our culture is to insulate men from having to feel their feelings. Or so
1: that you can, like, you only ever feel your feelings at a distance.
0: At a distance, yes. And processed in a way that is, like, comfortable Mm -hmm. for us, right? So, like, I really appreciate that idea in the book, and I think she expresses it beautifully in her comedy set talking about his art, and to be clear, like she's talking about the movement of art that he is the father of, where uh, cubism, you flatten cubism, where you flatten the three dimensional perspective on the two dimensionals uh, medium, and so you show the back, the sides, and the front all together. So when you do a face, it's that's why his art looks so weird because it's like the ears are not where they should be, and all of that kind of stuff, because you've flattened it all out, and you show every perspective simultaneously. But then, as she says, none of those perspectives are female. They're,
1: <laughs> They're just male, top, bottom, and side. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I do want to shout out the woman who wrote the book we were talking about, uh, Victoria Schwab. We didn't mention that she describes misogyny as a mental illness, so maybe... We should do that next, which is good because we're still talking about Picasso.
0: Yeah. And this is so brilliant. Like, it's very quotable and like totally true. It's one of those things that punched me right in the face. Misogyny is a mental illness.
1: Yes. Oh, my God. Yes.
0: You hate what you love. You hate what you desire. I think as a man, very often it can feel like women hold all the power in this weird way. And this is where the hatred comes from, I think.
1: It's like an incel thing, right?
0: Yes. Like women, exactly, exactly. Women like cannot be controlled. And so if they disapprove of you, then it like unmans you, right? It's like um, you watch Trump or somebody like that. And when they get rejected, they're like, well, it didn't happen. Actually, I am the president and it was all stolen from me. And it's like, you can't even like you just live in a different universe in your head because you have to. It's definitely, and if, I like, that is mental illness, right? Yeah, like, no, he that doesn't totally live is. in the real world. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's literally crazy.
1: I had never thought about misogyny as a mental illness before. That line definitely, like, knocked the breath out of me.
0: So I don't want what I said to be, like, I blame women for Trump living in another, like, it's fucking his fault. Like, let me be clear. Like, as a man, I can again, this comes back to empathy. Like, I understand the feeling mm-hmm. of my failure has been tied to this woman's choice and it feels like that is not fair because women are not supposed to have choices. You know that how everything is calibrated. Like, I can understand the experience of that emotionally. I can empathize with it and recognize that it's wrong and evil and fucked. But again, the empathy is not excusing anything. Like, I'm glad I understand it because... It's uh, it dehumanizes both people. It's crazy. It's literally crazy. It's a mental illness. She's completely right. And also, you know, it's literally dangerous for the not men involved. People die because they're beaten to death or uh, murdered because they are vulnerable to the hatred.
1: Well, and I think you can't separate the idea of misogyny as mental illness from the way that women's emotional responses are so often defined as or labeled as crazy right Mm. because it's it's so much projection right it's like if a woman does something unexpected (laughs) or that you don't like she's the crazy one and yet Maybe it's the fact that your expectations and entitlement are out of line that are the problem here and that are not aligned with reality. And like you said, it's so dangerous, you know, (laughs) to bring this back to gun control. Another thing that we talk about uh, fairly often Mm. on on our global set of podcasts, there's like a pretty big consensus, right, that people, quote unquote, with mental illness shouldn't have access to guns. You know, Mm -hmm. of course, defining what that is and, like, developing a system to regulate that is much harder. But it is interesting that, like, almost all of the mass shooters have some sort of history of misogyny, violence against women, and yet we as a society don't consider misogyny or domestic abuse, domestic violence a mental illness or evidence of mental illness. You know, it's like men are just given a fucking pass because men make the rules and right. it's seen as normal, right? And mental illness is defined by being not normal. And so we need to change what we think of as normal. I mean, obviously this isn't a gun control or politics podcast, but like, I'd, I fucking wish misogyny was a mental illness and anyone who had been arrested or had you know the police called out to them for domestic violence was prohibited from buying or owning a firearm because that would prevent a lot of fucking violence and deaths you know yeah um and instead we pathologize women for saying no or having a completely reasonable emotional reaction to being lied to or gaslit or manipulated or controlled, you know, um, like resisting the control of a man is considered getting hysterical. I do love that both of us are just like going on rants about (laughs) society's (laughs) ills as part of this podcast. I feel like Hannah Gatsby would be so proud of us. It's like we're really just leaning into the themes of everything.
0: I feel like the solution that is so often given to this problem is like what I think of as the Captain America solution. The problem with the patriarchy is the people who run it. And what we really need is like a Steve Rogers. If we had the right people Mm, as the men, if we had good moral men, the system would be perfect. No, no. (laughs) Like the system is designed, it's working great. In terms of like what it makes, it's making exactly what it is meant to make. And it's not meant to make Steve Rogers be in power. It's meant to make, you know, someone like Joss Whedon in power, who is like an artist for a long time that I looked up to. And I see a lot of some of the things that we've talked about in this podcast as like part of his... Artistic temperament, where he has taken that kind of suffering artist thing and self hatred and synthesized it into his work, where so many of his characters have this aspect to them where they consider themselves monstrous because they know right from wrong and they choose the wrongness for the greater good. I'm thinking of like people like Angel. Or like, um, you know, who does violence, but does violence for good. Or like the agent in Serenity mm-hmm. who, who tells Malcolm like.
3: So me and mine gotta lay down and die so you can live in your better world. I'm not going to live there. There's no place for me there any more than there is for you, Malcolm. I'm a monster. What I do is evil. I have no illusions about it, but it must be done.
0: And I think whether he's conscious of it or not, that like Joss Whedon is expressing something deep inside of him where he's like, I know what feminism is. I know what equality is. And I believe in those things, but I hate myself and I hate and desire women. And so like, I will fight for a world that cannot hold me as the monstrous person that I am.
1: He's like actually aware of his own misogyny. Yes,
0: Yes and he hates himself for it He knows what's right but he like Won't pull back From it and, and wants to be stopped Like it's like how the Slayer has like A I want to be killed Thing mm-hmm. you know a Death wish yeah it's the same kind of Thing it's like in his work that I see
1: Men will really create a universe Of television shows instead of Going to therapy
0: yeah man It's like it's <laughs> so totally fucked and, and Again he's a great writer And I don't think that it's an accident that he's a great writer because and it's not an accident that he's a misogynist and that he gaslit his wife and that he abused his actors, both of color and uh, women, because that's the system Mm -hmm. that that is what it makes. And and the systems themselves are engines of violence, just like she talks about the way that the jokes are structured in the stand up comedy works is to relieve tension and make you feel more comfortable. You know, it never processes the trauma. It just milks the trauma. It's just a suffering machine. And You know, when we call for like own voices people to, to create stories, to make movies, to make graphic art, whatever, whatever kind of art they're making, we can't hold them to these structures that we've had for forever. Because they're white, male, rich, supremacist structures. They need to be different structures that these groups create themselves for themselves. Because if they're not, then what you're actually doing is assimilating these people into these structures. Mm, yeah. And perpetuating it. So, like, I I would challenge people, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to go outside of your comfort zone, and I do this all the time, like I, I read a lot of indie books, self-published stuff, and and what you'll get a lot of times in that space is that you would be like, well, the quality is not very good. But again, I would say like I did earlier that when you talk about quality, what you're usually talking about, like reflect on what you mean by that because what you're usually talking about is comparing the structure, the known structure that you have and everything that that carries with it to this new thing that you're experiencing and and saying, well, it doesn't fit in this way and this way and this way and this way and think about why it has a different structure and who it's written by and what it's expressing and don't try to make it fit into the abusive, violent structure of everything else. That's how, We're just going to get more Joss Whedon's <laughs> if we keep doing that, I think
1: i'm glad that we've spent so much time shooting on joss Sweden in this episode because <laughs> our premiere episode was about buffy which is a show that i you know means a lot to both of us and i think we both still it breaks my heart we both still have so much affection for it and like obviously so many people are involved in a tv show and like he did not write most of the episodes um right but like also fuck joss Sweden. yeah
0: It sucks. It's like how she talks about Bill Cosby. Mm -hmm. But she also talks about how, you know, hindsight is a gift.
1: Yeah. I guess I am curious because, like, you and I have had these types of conversations before about, you know, quote unquote, separating the art from the artist and, like, Mm -hmm. how... Which
0: I think is a kind of numbness again.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, she is clearly on the side of, like, if artists do bad things we don't have to pretend otherwise or care about them. Like we can specifically choose to discard terrible people and their art, or at least make it, make it so that like every time we mention them, we mention like how fucking terrible they were.
0: Yeah. I think that's essential. That's it's irresponsible not to do that. If you are a critic, it's unethical. So like a lot of what we do is criticism here. Like, and neither of us are critics. Um, So there's a bunch of essays by, a writer and artist and novelist named Susan Sontag, uh, who was a lesbian woman in the 19, uh, you know, I think she died in like the eighties or nineties. Uh, most, so most of her works like from the sixties, seventies and eighties. She talks about this exact same thing that Nanette is talking about, how like the form is the art, like the structure is the thing, the content of the art is actually neutral. So, so like this pretty heavily informs the way that I look at art in the whole art and artist thing. So t- like to me, to whatever degree you're going to analyze art for one thing, it's just your take. It's just how you, in, and, and it's your take in that moment. Mm-hmm. It's not definitive. Like even if you want it to be, it's, it's really not for yourself because you're like a moving target You're going to change and, you know, or maybe like, you know, it could be as simple as like I have indigestion today or something. You'd be like, well, this movie sucked um, because like you're uncomfortable. But anyway, like the way that I see art is really as like a mirror. The mirror can be like a really good, clear, flat mirror that reflects something back to you about yourself or it can be a funhouse mirror that is like distorted and makes everything that is reflected out of it wrong. And so the the work of criticism is to identify how warped the mirror is and not to like assign moral value to that. You know, the author's biography and views are a part of that. And so to like to understand that Bill Cosby is a rapist is... T- to go back to his work and examine it from that perspective and understand that the humanity that is expressed through his comedy is warped in that way where he is comfortable with that, using his power that way and his position. I think this is also part of the reason why it's very dangerous to have like fandoms getting their identity from works of fiction because. Fandom spaces do not encourage criticism of the work in this way. Reflective criticism, because to talk badly about the thing is to like ruin everybody's social time together, right? Like you're here to like have some found family and like enjoy each other and have fun with the text, but you're not here to like have a bummer and be like, actually Captain America is super misogynist because it, it, it says that the patriarchy works because the, all it needs is moral people to run it. It well if you're like creating a fandom around Captain America that's a bummer, right? That makes you feel bad and immoral for enjoying Captain America. But actually, once you understand that, once you understand that the mirror is warped in that way, to me it it makes it a choice. I don't think that it invests the actual art with some kind of moral charge. It just means that the that every all the reflection that comes out of it is going to be warped you know like the way that capitalism is hooked up to storytelling and and art makes all of this very different because like to buy you know stuff from like Woody Allen or something like that is to support him right Mm -hmm. and that's a different issue I think than the kind of thing that I'm talking about and I would never begrudge anybody to be like I will not watch so and so stuff I will not But even that, even then, I would say that like somebody has like a deal with like this movie studio or this publishing place. Like J.K. Rowling, for example, you'd be like, well, I'm not going to buy her stuff. Okay, but if you go to a universal theme park, you are giving her money. Mm -hmm. Like the same thing, like if you buy a book by another artist from another novelist from the same publisher as JK Rowling, you are giving her money because that is her publisher. They make sure that the richest people get their money first. And so like the system, again, the system is set up to, to do this. And so like, it's the system that needs to change it's not going to change by like following the rules of the system. Uh, And that is a separate issue. I feel like from the art criticism issue and being like, I just don't believe that art is morally charged, but that is something that, you know, maybe I'm wrong about. Um.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it is interesting, right? Because it is true. Like on some level, the art is not morally charged. Like if you look at a Picasso painting, that pain, it doesn't
0: make you a rapist. That
1: painting itself is not wounding anyone. It's not hurting anyone. I mean, you could... Right. I don't know. I mean, I guess, like, Justice League, the movie itself, is hurting Ray Fisher. Mm. Or, like, he mm-hmm. was harmed by the process of that. I don't know, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to what extent is a 17-year-old girl harmed by a Picasso painting. Like I guess maybe if it's of her, but not if it's of something else. I I don't know. That I'm like I haven't decided how I feel about the moral charge of the art itself. But I do think regardless of where you come down on that issue, like the like worshipping of these super problematic mostly white dudes, you know, like that does hurt people, right? That myth of male genius. Mm -hmm. does hurt people the idea that we have to tolerate or apologize for um the shitty behavior of these creative genius men like that that hurts people and that does Mm -hmm. damage to people so like yeah we we absolutely need to tear that down and attack that wherever we can and I I just think Hannah Gadsby does a great job with that and Picasso mm-hmm. in in that
0: yeah, I, and I think it goes back to that, you know, what is the art for, and it and it exists within the structure that we've been talking about for white male catharsis,
3: mm-hmm.
0: right? And so that's why it needs to be defended, and the complicated relationship between the artist. You know, and collaborative efforts like film, like you're saying with Justice League, all of those need to be dampened in a you need to numb yourself between the relationship between the artist and the art so that this can exist so that white men can have a cathartic release, because that is the only way we are allowed to have a cathartic release. It's like, yo, <laughs> art does not need maybe we're using it wrong, you know, like, yeah, or, you know, and it doesn't even like these geniuses. It's not even helping them. Is is the other thing that she points out about it? It just makes them less human, mm-hmm. and it just makes us less human. Um. So the whole thing sucks. Mm-hmm. So like I would I would just say, and I've man, like we have, I have ranted at you, you know, in our private chats and in our in our group chats, so many times about this exact thing of like and I feel bad <laughs> of like because it's just basically like she says it so perfectly I I felt so like yes she's like saying it much better than I ever have of like the whole system sucks and it and it shouldn't be the way that it is and it doesn't help anybody actually and so like you should just get rid of it um I just don't know how to do that. I wish I knew how to make that happen.
2: Do you know who used to be an easy punchline? Monica Lewinsky. Maybe if comedians had done their job properly and made fun of the man who abused his power, then perhaps we might have had a middle-aged woman with an appropriate amount of experience in the White House. Instead, as we do, a man who openly admitted to sexually assaulting vulnerable young women because he could. What should be the target of our jokes at the moment? Our obsession with reputation. We're obsessed with it. We think reputation is more important than anything else, including humanity. And do you know who takes the mantle of this myopic adulation of reputation? Celebrities and comedians are not immune. They're all cut from the same cloth. Donald Trump, Pablo Picasso, Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby, Woody Allen, Roman Polanski. These men are not exceptions, they are the rule. And they're not individuals, they are our stories. And the moral of our story is we don't give a shit. We don't give a fuck about women or children. We only care about a man's reputation. What about his humanity? These men control our stories and yet they have a diminishing connection to their own humanity, and we don't seem to mind so long as they get to hold on to their precious reputation. Fuck reputation. Hindsight is a gift. Stop wasting my time. If you... Look, I am angry. (laughs) I apologise. I do, I apologise. Oh no, there's a few people in the room are going, ah oh, look, I think I think she's lost control of the tension.
1: I don't know. I just keep going back to her phrasing of hindsight is a gift, where it's like, Yeah, you're still looking at the thing, but you are just you're looking at it with that added knowledge and perspective. And and maybe I don't know, like it's not it's not revenge. Or maybe it is revenge, but, you know, it's only as meaningful as revenge ever is that Picasso will live on forever as, you know, a famous person, as a a household name. But if we can make it so that, you know, the first thing that you think of when you hear the name Picasso is cubism and the second thing is misogynist fuckface... I don't know. Is is being remembered for pro- for forever um, as a misogynist fuckface? Like, is, does that count for something? I don't know.
0: You know, it's kind of like how Columbus Day is now Indigenous, Indigenous people day. Yeah, and I don't know if it makes up for it. Um, oh, but it's like that one. It's I progress. think is much
1: lower on the <laughs> the spectrum of yeah. like ever being able to make up for a genocide. Um, yeah. But yeah, I
0: mean, even there, like, I have feelings about like, was it a genocide or is that like white supremacist attitude of like, we could have wiped you out and we didn't totally, but like, really, it was disease that wiped them out. It doesn't matter. I see. Columbus could have been the nicest person in the world, and it wouldn't have mattered. It still would have killed nine tenths of the population. Anyway, that's a I see.
1: It, g- um. it gives the white people too much agency and choice in the matter. Yes.
0: Yes. yes. Because it didn't happen anywhere else. This is one of the only times in history where you have a Contra example. Like, we colonized everywhere. And w- how big is the British Empire? It's a tiny fucking island again. That's how big it is. Because they got kicked out of India and the French got kicked out of Africa and they got kicked out of East Asia. They didn't get kicked out of America and Australia because everyone died of disease. It's not because we were better I see. than the people who were here. It's, uh, anyway. It's uh, that's a different but related thing. But Columbus, also a bad person. Yes. It's I don't know. Like, it, it's just more. We just need more reflection. We need more honesty about how we approach our art. To me, like that is divorced from the issue of capitalism, which is structurally a a different. But, you know, insidious problem that is related to the art. So like, but maybe I'm wrong about all of that. And it's like, so my point with Susan Sontag is kind of what Hannah Gadsby is saying, where where like the structure of the art is the art, it is the thing. And so that's what I mean by like the warped mirror, is that like you need an awareness of the thing that you're looking at is a thing that is designed to make Joss Whedons and Harvey Weinstein's and Donald Trump's to understand what it really is and that we need to break the structure of it in breaking the structure of it. What I mean is not make a fun house mirror. We need a flat, smooth, clear mirror (laughs) so we can see ourselves, which is uh, in the, art. which
1: is what Nanette is, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's the smooth mirror. It's the having to confront the ugliness and the reality of it without the fringe and the, Glitter and the, you know, the distracting of fitting it to the form. Yeah. Oh, there's something there is, oh, there's something there about the like carving your story to fit the predetermined frame versus designing the frame to fit the story how it is.
0: Yes. And I think that's exciting. Yeah. You know, that we could live in a time where that happens. That we can lift up voices that make that happen, that we can be in some peripheral way a part of that. Like that excites me. That's important work.
1: And that is part of what I love about podcasting is that it is so flexible as a form of media, right? Because, you know, some of our episodes are 45 minutes long. Some of them are two hours long. You know, we take the time that we need to take to have the discussion that we want to have. Unlike, you know, TV shows where everything has to be a certain length, plus or minus two minutes to fit into that capitalist enterprise because Mm -hmm. it's really, you know, it has to start at one time and end at another time and have the ad breaks. And I guess, you know, Prestige Cable is also playing with that a little bit, I think, you know, to a lesser extent than podcasts, but they do get a lot more flexibility in terms, at least of, like, episode times and, like, how that relates to the story that they're telling. Okay, well, speaking of length, we've been talking for about two hours, so uh, let's just touch briefly on uh, Hannah Gadsby's follow-up show, Douglas, which deconstructs the stand-up comedy special form in a completely different way, which is so funny. So she basically spends the first, what, like 10 minutes explaining what's going to happen in the show before it happens.
0: It's so smart. It's It's brilliant. It's
1: incredible. I mean, it's incredible in so many ways, right? I mean, first of all, Nanette itself is so unique and so form-breaking. I think it was truly, you know, she talks about managing expectations and setting expectations. Like, that's a real thing that needs to be done, right? Because, you know, I, I went into it not knowing what to expect. Now,
2: it's a fun story, it's a fun story, and, and throughout that story I will touch on, with consent, most of the major themes of the show, so watch out for those. And it will also include a fair dose and uh, what I call a gentle and very good-natured needling of the patriarchy, so that is in there. So it's very important, it's very important that you expect that because it is there. And if that's not your thing, leave. I've given you plenty of warning. Just go off your pop man flakes. At you go. Go on with you.
1: Oh yeah, and I love it too because like that is. Oh, she has to know, right, that like that is going to make those people frustrated, right? Because by inviting them to leave and telling them to leave, she makes it so that they can't leave because then they're yeah. just giving in to what she wants. It's it's genius. She takes this like very real need or, you know, it's like serving a specific purpose, like a a very functional utilitarian purpose. And then instead of just giving a warning or, like, a short explanation, she, like, turns it into this whole bit that, like, inverts what comedy is, right? Because comedy is all about surprise. And so she's taking away that surprise. And somehow it's still funny. By trying to set expectations, she is also destroying our expectations because our expectations mm. for comedy is that a lot of the value is in the surprise. It's like art in the most fundamental sense of the word. I think you know, and in the way that we kind of make the distinction between literary fiction and genre fiction, in that mm-hmm. literary fiction is trying to say something about the form itself, whereas genre fiction is more telling a story within this given uh, like structure or form. Mm -hmm. This is, I would call it, like, literary stand-up comedy.
0: It's very sophisticated. Yeah. There's a meta level. And she knows it. It, She's not just being, like, pretentious. Yeah. She's such a smart writer, such a talented performer. And
1: I think this is another place where her art history training comes in. You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just about the art history content, but, like, the way that you have to think about what art is, how art evolves over time, the meta of art like all of yeah. that informs what she does
0: she is so joyful mm-hmm. in douglas mm-hmm. this a is dif- a different energy and it's hard for me it's impossible for me to know how much of that is a performance like there's a whole thing of stand-up comedy that is performance right everything that happens is a performance in in the same way of like acting you you need to make it seem very natural. You need to be controlling the energy of the audience through the the relationship you seem to have with yourself. Like, if you seem unsure, it's going to make the audience not trust you, and therefore, like, it's, you're going to have a harder time winning them over and all that kind of stuff. So, like, the way that in Nanette, she seems kind of strung out and traumatized and, like... She's been on an adrenaline binge for a year, you know. Yeah. Of like, well,
1: and and just tired. I don't know
0: how much of that is. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how much of that is a performance and how much of it is just that show versus the other one, but you can feel it.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, right, is that any one human, right, is different things, yeah. and so yeah. and so, yeah. I think, you know. They're both performances. She's just channeling different parts of herself.
0: Good. Yes. Because that's what I mean. I don't yeah. mean it to be like, she's a liar. because yeah. that's not Or what like
1: one is the true her and the other one is the fake her. But it's just yeah. like, we all have different moods and modes of being and she's channeling two different modes of being in these different specials. Mm.
0: So th- they are totally different. They're different experiences, even though it's the same performer, which in itself is impressive and speaks to like her talent and how much hard work she's put into the whole process. I'm glad she didn't quit because she talked about that in the net and, it, and I was really kind of depressed at the end of it in terms of, wow, what, what a talented, incredible person and to think that she left and then like I looked for more and I was like oh good yeah (laughs) she didn't
1: leave (laughs) I mean part of it right is that like once you have something that's that successful and makes that much of a cultural mark people are gonna be throwing money at you after that and it's hard to say no to that but also like I mean I think I can just tell with how how thoughtful she is and how much care she puts into everything like she is one of the few people who look like her who have been given that platform and that microphone. Mm, And I think mm -hmm. she takes that very seriously. And, you know, as much as we talk about how much of a burden it is to be the spokesperson for your people, in some ways it is also an honor and a service, you know? Like, she did talk about she wishes that she had had people like her um as role models when she was growing up you know I'm not sure how long she'll stick at it but I feel like she had to at least do a follow-up to show you know that it not I don't mean to like show that it wasn't a fluke in a way of like having to prove herself because I don't I mean I'm projecting a lot now I don't think that was her motivation but I think it was to (laughs) to show right that um Like, we kind of talked about, like, multiple modes of being, right? To show multiple facets Mm -hmm. of her existence and her humanity. She didn't want people to think that the trauma and the anger of Nanette was all that she is or that she had, you know? Mm
3: -hmm.
1: Like, I I think she wanted the chance to have more of that queer joy, and, you know, giving queer audiences queer joy is as important as giving them catharsis for their trauma and anger. Cool. Well, I guess that's the end of our show on Nanette. Join us next month for an episode on LaMorte d'Arthur um, with our guest, Dr. Paul Moffitt. Um, so we're going to be... Um, Kicking off um, a long series of episodes with guests that I'm super excited about. Um, And, you know, after going on and on about, you know, how our last two episodes have been more recent works, uh, this one I think is our oldest so far. Um, It was written probably around 1470 Mm. so might have a slightly different flavor than this one (laughs) but i am i'm super excited um so paul um, is a friend of both of ours um and he is you know a professional medievalist by trade he wrote his phd dissertation on the Mort d'arthur um and i recently took just like an informal for fun class that he taught on it um and not having had uh, basically any exposure to Arthurian legend other than, you know, like, Monty Python, basically, and some, like, general cultural osmosis. Um, I found it super fascinating. Like, I haven't even seen Disney's Sword in the Stone. Um, so that's kind of the level of of um, preconceived notions and, like, background knowledge that I was working with. And it was, it's just been super interesting. Um, and so um, when that episode is released, it will be right before um, his third class on Lamort D'Arthur. And I think his second one, um, I actually don't know if it's going to be starting before or after this episode airs, but you can look it up. Um, his He teaches his classes um, through the school he runs called Clockworks Academy. Um, you can Google it. They're on Twitter. Um, he has a website. Um, great, great stuff.
0: He's a wonderful teacher. I've taken the Frankenstein class. He's extremely thorough and and he's funny and smart. I'm excited to uh, talk to Dr. Paul.
1: If you like what we do here on Hallowground Storycast, don't forget to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya and you can follow me on Twitter at strangelyliteral. That's strangely then L-I-T-E-R-L.
0: I'm Alan, and you can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com.
1: If you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com contact or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com. Hallowed Ground StoryCast is a Hallowed Ground Media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.